This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. Ignition. Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major Fantastic. It's The Takeout. Major. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major, that's nonsense. Major Garrett. And you should know better. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett, host and creator of this amazing show called The Takeout. It's a podcast. It's a radio program nationwide. It's also on CBSN. However you find this program, thanks for joining us. You know... We are always a couple of things here, relentlessly curious, steadfastly non-ideological, and we love books on this show, and we have a celebrated, justifiably celebrated author on the show this week, a great conversation with a brilliant writer, a brilliant historian named John M. Barry. Uh, The main topic will be his magnum opus on the flu pandemic the misnamed Spanish flu of 1918 through 1920. That book is called The Great Influenza. John, it is my distinct honor, and as they often say on the House floor, and high pleasure to meet you, to talk to you, and have, us, have you join us here at the takeout. Thank you for your very kind words. I'd like to carry you around when I give talks and <laughs> have you give that introduction for me elsewhere. <laughs> I, I I am a good uh, and uh, reliable rental property, John. Okay. So yes, <laughs> that's very kind of you. Thank you. Um, let's start big picture, and then we'll get to some of the fascinating dimensions of the flu influenza pandemic of nineteen eighteen and nineteen twenty. Um, are there any comparable aspects of that and what we're living through now? Uh, please enumerate them, and if there are some in- important and need-to-remember differences, help our audience understand those as well. I mean, they're very much in parallel. Uh, an animal virus jumps species to humans, uh, primarily a respiratory virus, uh, although, oddly enough, the pathology of both viruses is very similar. They can infect all sorts of organs besides the uh, upper respiratory tract and the lungs. Um, the transmission is essentially identical, how you catch the disease. Uh, the 1918 virus was much more lethal. Thankfully, we are not facing that. Killed 50 to 100 million people. Uh, if you adjust for population, that'd be equal to 220 to 440 million people today. We're not, you know, even the worst, worst case scenarios uh, would not approach that today. Uh, the chief differences are that is really duration. Uh, the, uh, 
influenza virus, like other influenza <clears throat> viruses, incubation periods one to four days. Most people get sick at two. Uh, COVID-19 is two to 14 days. Most people get sick at five or six days. And that's, you're also sick longer. Uh, influenza generally three, five days, maybe six, seven days outside and you're okay. Uh, this disease takes a lot longer to make you sick, get you sick, for you to recover. Uh, you shed virus longer. And that is a critical difference in terms of handling it and the economic impact and so forth. Uh, in 1918, influenza would go through a particular city uh, in six to 10 weeks. Uh, this disease obviously is, would take a lot longer naturally and because we're trying to save lives uh, and have saved lives by shutting down transmission, it, it, it takes even, it's moving even more slowly. Um, I guess one other thing that's significantly different, uh, the target demographic in 1918 was mostly young people. Two thirds of the dead were 18 to 45 years of age. The peak age of death was 28. Uh, the elderly in 1918 actually uh, escaped almost entirely. 90, over 90% 90 of the excess mortality was people under 65. Of course, that's the, the reverse. Uh, now. Why is it misnamed the Spanish flu? Well, uh, Western Europe and the U.S. was at war, and Spain was not. Uh, so when it hit Spain in the spring uh, and sickened the king, which celebrity culture then as now, uh, the Spanish papers wrote about it and uh, foreign papers wrote about it as well, and it picked up the name Spanish flu everywhere but in Spain, where they seem to refer to it as Naples flu. Understood. Uh, but it started much closer to home here in America, yes? Well, we're not really sure. In my book, I advanced a hypothesis mm -hmm. that it started in rural Kansas and moved from Haskell County to uh, Fort Riley uh, and spread from there. And I thought I had pretty good evidence. But the book originally came out 16 years ago. There's been a lot of work since then. Right now, I think that's still a possibility, but I would put my uh, money on China. Uh, there are other options. There's, you know, a lot of virologists think it started in France, uh, some in Vietnam. New York City is even a possibility. We will probably never know where it actually started. But the story about uh, Haskell County, Kansas, is fascinating in that there was an outbreak there. There was right. movement from there to a uh, stood-up military facility, and from there, people moved across the country and into the European theater. That's that, exactly right. And, and, you know, the Haskell County was the first place anywhere in the world uh, that there were reports of a lethal influenza pandemic. And I, as you just went through, I traced people moving from homes where influenza and pneumonia were, were reported uh, to that army camp. And 72 hours after they arrived in the army camp, influenza starts in the camp. So I think it's clear that. Uh, the camp outbreak did come from Haskell County. How the virus got to Haskell County, that's another question. Uh, you know, possibly somebody from New York or, you know, it still could have started there. The reason I now think China is really epidemiological evidence, uh, parts of China were not very hard hit by 
1918. They had maybe the least mortality on a per capita basis uh, than most other, practically any place, particularly Hong Kong, which strongly suggests that the virus had circulated there and provided some natural immune protection. What what role did World War One play in this story? Well, I think it accelerated the spread, uh, but I don't think it had a major impact. For example, we know that the virus was in New York City after Haskell, uh, but before Fort Riley. So I didn't know that at the time the the book was written. That we you know more research is covered since then. So if it's in New York City, it's going to get all over the world. Whether it started in New York or arrived in New York, it would have gotten all over the world anyway. But it is clear that American troops in April of 1918 did carry it to Europe. Uh, That first wave was very spotty. About half the military camps got hit. Half uh, did not. Fewer, much less, I think, than half the cities in the country got hit. For example, Los Angeles didn't have a single influenza death in the spring of 1918. I think worldwide, it was pretty widespread in Western Europe, but I think most of the rest of the world, a lot of the rest of the world, uh, didn't get particularly hard hit. So, you know, the virus seemed to be maybe not, hadn't perfected its ability to infect people, possibly. Uh, It's hard to say. that first wave seemed to die out. It was also extremely mild. There were medical journal articles that actually said this looks and smells like influenza, but it's not killing enough people, so it's probably not influenza. Uh, that changed radically a few months later. Uh, it was killing so many people that it was initially regarded as an entirely new disease, although that changed fairly rapidly and they figured out it was just a lethal influenza pandemic. And statistically, how can we understand that first wave and the second wave in terms of lethality? And what ought that tell us about where we are now, or or at least warn us about? Well, the influenza virus, one of the differences between influenza and COVID-19, again, thankfully, in this case, influenza mutates much, much, much more rapidly than COVID-19. The virus did seem to uh, mutate, uh, did mutate, in my view. Uh, became very lethal in in the fall. Uh, roughly two thirds of the deaths, probably you know, over a two year period, roughly two thirds are compressed into a fourteen or fifteen week period from September to December of nineteen eighteen. Uh, and as I said earlier, in a particular community, it was even less time than that. Uh, so I think the virus mutated. Uh, the the lethality is so different from one from the spring to the fall, that there are some pretty respected virologists, although a distinct minority, and I think they're wrong. I could give the reasons, but we don't have time, uh, who actually think that they they were different viruses. But I think all the evidence says they were the same virus, except for that change in lethality. Is there a danger in being too afraid of what happened in 1918, 1919, and 1920, as we think about now? Well, I think concern that this virus will change and become much more deadly, which did happen in 1918. I think there's no reason to think that. Even in 1918, there were plenty of instances of this, of extraordinary lethality, little pockets 
of it that gave you hints of the potential of the virus. And there's none of that right now. Um, in addition, as I, you know, I said a minute ago, this virus mutates much more slowly than influenza. Uh, and there's no indication of any change, anything like that direction. So I'm quite relaxed on that particular issue. Mm-hmm. That's the voice of John M. Barry, our special guest, his book that we're talking about intensely, The Great Influenza. There are many others to talk about, which we will get to in a moment. I'm Major Garrett. You're listening to, watching, and as always, thoroughly enjoying The Takeout. CBS News. This is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. John M. Barry is our guest. He is the author of many phenomenal books, the one we are most focused on in this episode, The Great Influenza. Uh, John, talk to me about what public health learned and did to respond to that influenza and how it compares or is informing what we're doing now. Well, I think that there are two lessons that come out of 1918. Uh, the first is to tell the truth. Uh, if you're going to get the public to comply with public health advice, they have to trust you and you have to trust the public and you have to tell them the truth. I think that's a very clear lesson. Uh, incidentally, that's a lesson that is written into the pandemic preparedness plan for not only uh, the federal government, for every one of the 50 states. Uh, you know, when the Bush administration launched a very significant initiative for preparedness, including creating the national stockpile, vaccine technology and manufacturing capacity, things like that, included a planning process. Um, they asked me to participate, and that was the lesson that I kept beating on people, but nobody ever argued with me. And it's very high priority tell the truth to the public. Uh, the second lesson is. Uh, social distancing and other public health guidelines like that. Uh, the cities, uh, you know, the reason I was asked to participate in those groups was because I knew what happened in 1918. Uh, and the cities that that closed down earlier, stayed closed longer, uh, tended to do better uh, in terms of the disease. And oddly enough, there's some recent uh, studies by two different Federal Reserve branch banks uh, that both concluded that the economies of these cities that were closed down longer actually did much better when they came out of lockdown than cities that were closed for a shorter period. What should what should that tell us about our pace of reopening now? Well, that we need to, you know, phase it in and, and be very careful and monitor the disease. In 1918, uh, many cities, possibly most, but I didn't do a precise numerical uh, assessment, uh, many cities reopened too soon. Uh, they were open for several weeks and then they had closed down again as the disease surged back. There are a few cities, maybe more than a, than a tiny handful, that had to do that three times. And, you know, it's, that's a lesson that I don't know that we've learned. I think politically right now, it would be extremely difficult, even if there's a significant resurgence for, for some of these states to shut back down 
we will see because hopefully there won't be this surge. Right. Considering your advocacy for truth-telling, how would you evaluate truth-telling from public officials in this pandemic? Well, you have a a distinct... You have to draw a distinction between people in the administration but not directly associated with the White House, uh, Tony Fauci and CDC and so forth. I think, you know, they've made every effort to be uh, candid. Uh, and then you have the White House operation. And, you know, clearly they have not uh, told the truth, unfortunately. And the result is that you have a lot of people who are not complying with the guy, with the advice. Uh, they, you know, somehow the White House has managed to politicize attempts to save people's lives and pr- protect them. I, you know, how they managed to do that. I mean, I know how they did it. You know how they did it. But how a mask has become a political statement is just crazy. Uh, the mask was not a political statement in 1918, I gather. It was not. It was not. Uh, there were a fair number of cities, particularly on the West Coast, uh, which passed laws mandating mask usage. In uh, the first round, there was large, considerable compliance without any trouble. Uh, in some cities like San Francisco, uh, where they, you know, reopened the city, uh, didn't have to wear masks, and they shut the city back down again. Then, and, and mass, the mask law required was reimposed. Then there was a lot of pushback. Uh, and again, given the, San Francisco was one of the hardest hit cities in the country and a lot of people were dying. So, you know, that's a sign of how strong that sentiment was. Mostly, I think, because people felt okay again after the reopening and, and they, you know, they thought it was over. Uh, and then to disappoint them again, there's just this resentment that builds up. Well, why did, why did you let us tell us that we were okay initially. Why don't you just keep it in? Anyway, that's speculation on my part. Sure. The virus doesn't care whether you believe in it or not, does it? It doesn't care what your ideology is. It doesn't care what partisan pose you want to strike. It's going to do what it does. Right, which is replicate. It's not even alive. A virus is, you know, sort of on the edge of life. Bacteria, that's alive. Uh, But a virus is essentially... It's almost like a chemical reaction uh, and, and not much more than that. It certainly doesn't have a mind. It can't be trained uh, and it's going to do what it does, infects and replicates and spreads. And from a historian's perspective, does it, I don't, I don't want to put any words in your mouth. What does it do to you to see things that in the 21st century are factual can be scientifically evaluated, yet still be disbelieved. And one of the reasons or justifications for that disbelief is my ideology. You know, it's obviously very disappointing. The same people who are resisting uh, public health advice and scientific advice on this, they'll go to their doctor and believe in their doctor. If the doctor says you've got cancer, and we need to do X, Y, Z. There aren't too many of those people who are going to say, nah, I don't care what the doctor says. I'm going to do something else. So I don't understand why they view this so differently. Uh, they shouldn't. 
you know, scientific advice is scientific advice. Uh, but it is what it is. Mm-hmm. Has it been noteworthy to you the comparative absence of the Centers for Disease Control in talking about this? Very noteworthy. Uh, CDC has been the center of everything, you know, uh, in terms of outbreaks uh, since it was founded. That's what they do. They have tremendous expertise. Uh, it's been a major disappointment that they've been shunted aside. There are very good people at CDC. I think they did make, a, obviously, a mistake at the beginning on testing. That put us behind the curve. We may as well, I mean, they would admit that as well. Uh, they do tell the truth. Uh, but they, that aside, they know what to do. They should be part of the process uh, much more than they are. Um, it, it is, it's a waste of tr- a tremendous resource not to put them out front. Does it r- increase our relative risk? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. In what way? Well, again, the more people hear the same message, the more likely they are, even if they're resistant to it, you can wear them down. And the disappearance of health professionals, people who really know what they're talking about from the scene, you know, lessens the opportunity for them to get out the message. You know, in a situation like this, where you don't have any drugs, you don't have a vaccine yet, all you have to handle this is public health measures. The great irony of this entire thing and tragedy is that this can be controlled by public health measures, but you have to do those measures. I think all your viewers probably recognize that our country has not done a great job. Look at the death toll. We're over 100,000 deaths, the most in the world. You know, South Korea, with a population of 50 million, has under 300 deaths. Uh, Germany, with a population of 83 million, started slowly, got behind the curve, but managed to get ahead of it. They have a little over 8,000 deaths. And we're over, over 100,000. Uh, and there's a reason for that. And it doesn't have to be the case. I mean, it is tragic. That's the voice of John M. Barry, the author of The Great Influenza and many other excellent books. On the other side of this break, we'll talk about the economics of the pandemic, 1918-1920, and ideas then and now about what your civil liberties are in the midst of a public health crisis. I'm Major Garrett. You are watching, listening to, and as always, enjoying The Takeout. CBS News. This is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. Of course, we're all working from home, or those of us who can work from home are working from home. Those of you who are on the front lines in whatever capacity, we wish you the very best. Stay safe. Be well. Know that we appreciate all that you are doing. Uh, You know, uh, longtime fans of this program, it is typically built around a meal in a restaurant and a conversation face-to-face. We hope to get back to those days um, in the not-too-distant future, but until then, we're honored to have people that we are talking to via Zoom with all the uh, audio and technical gremlins that may arise. Uh, Our guest this week, John M. Barry, the author of The Great Influenza and many other spectacular books. Um, 
There's an anecdote I know you want to share with the audience, uh, John, about your engagement uh, on the question of pandemic preparedness, the Bush administration, and Hong Kong. Please go ahead. Well, the very first meeting uh, on pandemic preparedness in the Bush administration, uh, the infection control chief from the hospital in Hong Kong it had the best record in the world on healthcare workers not getting sick, uh, attended that meeting. Uh, over 20% of the fatalities in SARS were actually healthcare workers. And, and his hospital had an extraordinary record. So he was there to explain what he did. And he said there was nothing different, uh, that every hospital in the world knew what to do. He just made sure that his staff did it, that it was a question of discipline, that they did it the right way every time, all the time. And when I first got out of school, I coached football for a few years, and it, I just thought of Vince Lombardi blocking and tackling. And the lesson of that really applies right now. We know what to do. We can control this outbreak, this pandemic, but we have to do it. We have to execute it. Every football coach talks about, well, we got a plan. we got to go execute. They didn't execute. Well, we have the opportunity to execute and protect your own life, the lives of those around you and, and other people and, and in, impact the transmission of the virus itself. But we have mm -hmm. to do it. And for those who say there's something I find uncomfortable, some have even said unconstitutional about a requirement to wear a face covering, you say what? You know, talk about right to life. How about that? Uh, you know, obviously, you know, we are required to get driver's license, have insurance for cars. I mean, and there are a thousand analogies you, you can bring up uh, that defeat that argument. I mean, it's absurd. It is uncomfortable. It's not comfortable, but it's not as uncomfortable as uh, getting sick or, or dying. And it is helpful. That is to say, the use of a face covering makes a scientifically important difference. True? Yeah. No, yes. But I also want to emphasize the most important thing is social distancing. That's number one. Social distancing is number one. Then you've got hand washing and masks as a combination are powerful. There are studies that, that do show that. Uh, it matters. And staying home when sick. Those are, those are I think, the, the main things. Staying home when sick shouldn't be over cannot be overemphasized enough either. And what what was um, the pandemic 1918 to 1920? Was that sort of a hinge of history for public health in this country and the comprehension of the importance of hygiene? Was it like one of these classic turning points? Well, it more confirmed it. You know, they, okay. they had made great strides in saving lives in cholera, for example. They understood quarantine. Uh, there are other diseases that people were quarantined for. Uh, and they used what they learned from other diseases and applied them to influenza and had some impact. Uh, but the number one thing was the social distancing. The reality is fear did a lot more than any public health guidance. Uh, the 1918 virus was pretty frightening. Uh, and some of the symptoms were horrific. Uh, the most horrific would probably be um, bleeding, 
Uh, it could be a hemorrhagic fever like Ebola, it seemed like. Uh, you could bleed not only from your nose, and in some army camps, 15% of troops had nosebleed, but people could also bleed from their, not only their mouth, but their eyes and ears. So that's pretty scary. Mm -hmm. So when you see things like that, and people could die in less than 24 hours. So the streets were largely emptied by fear, not by public health guidance. And that is another comparative difference, the speed and the viciousness of that virus then. Right. So we would not have a lot of these arguments that we're having today that this is, you know, not so bad. It's just a bad cold. It's, you know, really like uh, it's almost a hoax, as, you know, was said earlier. Uh, if you had those symptoms today, nobody would be talking about that. Right. Um, and what was the economic impact of the pandemic? Did it destroy the U.S. economy? Did it hobble it? What what effect did it have? Well, you know, influenza moved much more rapidly. So even when places were closed down, it was a lot shorter period uh, uh, than this. In addition, the economy was a lot different there. Uh, there was a fairly intense uh, recession right after it. Uh, and then came four million soldiers re-entering the workforce, which also created uh, a problem. But uh, it recovered pretty rapidly, and they did go back not to a new normal, but to a normal normal. And if I hear you correctly, one of the challenges for us as a country right now is this balancing of risk and reopening, because it doesn't look as scary as that influenza pandemic did. Therefore, there's more skepticism about it, but then the challenge to reopen in a phased way, safely, is therefore greater, not less. We have to get this right. That's right. I mean, the virus is still out there and it's still dangerous. Uh, we are learning things about it the, in terms of attacking the young and including kids that didn't seem to be the case in the data that came out of China. Uh, but both in Western Europe and the United States, we're, we're hearing things like that. Uh, you know, we need to be careful. It would be great if everybody reopens and there's no resurgence. I think that's highly unlikely. So we need to get the testing in place. In most states, that's still not up and running the way it should be. We need to get the contact tracing in place. In most states, that's still not up and running the way it should be. There hasn't been any federal uh, leadership on that. There should have been. Uh, you know, South Korea, again, they, they didn't shut down their economy. They have only a few hundred deaths and they're still in control of it. That doesn't mean they, there are, you know, upticks there, the clusters there that they keep monitoring constantly. Uh, you know, if we had done this right, we would have had tens of thousands fewer dead and much less impact on the economy. Essentially, you know, no serious impact on the economy, not tens of millions of people unemployed. But we didn't. Uh, we are where we are now, and, and we still can minimize that impact on the economy by testing, tracing, being careful, jumping on clusters, and so forth and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, you're, you're speaking to us from your home in New Orleans, correct? Correct, in the French Quarter. Yes. So how scary was it there about six to eight weeks ago? Well, we did have the highest growth rates in the, in the world. Uh, but both 
uh, the governor here and the mayor, I think, did the right thing, uh, closed things down as soon as things, is, you know, they followed the advice of public health people. Uh, and, and there was dramatic change in the rates in New Orleans. Uh, I didn't see the latest data, but I know we've recently gone three days in a row without a death in, in New Orleans. Uh, and really here, the curve did go sharply downward as it did in New York. Uh, so yeah, right now, things are, are look pretty good. And how are things reopening in the French Quarter itself? That is a magnet for people all over this world, justifiably. Anyone who's been there knows why. If you haven't been, I highly recommend it. But is there a new normal there? Does it look different? Does it feel different? Will it be fundamentally different for the foreseeable future? Uh, I think for the foreseeable future, certainly the next few months, it'll be a lot different. You know, the restaurants have reopened. Uh, the bars have not. 25% capacity. If things go well in another couple of weeks, the uh, the governor is going to look at a you know phase two. Uh, some of the restaurants are continuing to just do uh, takeout uh, because their staff doesn't uh, feel safe. Uh, to be honest, you know I did uh, go into a, a restaurant that had outside seating. Uh, rain, you know, came down. Uh, and I did move inside and, you know, I've been a little nervous about it ever since, although the table we were, I mean, they did have proper distancing and so forth and so on. But you can't very well wear masks, uh, while you're eating. That's a little bit different. No. <laughs> yeah. We haven't engineered that quite yet. I'm not sure we will. And I'm not sure I want anyone to figure that out. Uh, from again, your perspective, learning so much about then and evaluating things now, do you how do you think about sports? How do you think about public gatherings? Are those things we just have to tell ourselves have to be delayed and have to be just put on the shelf for a while, or do we try to imagine them in a different way and execute them in a different way? I think the, the testing is you know needs to be done, and you know it may be possible. Uh, if things go really well, uh, to bring sports back, but I don't think you can bring them back with, with crowds. Uh, so you may have, you know, the NFL playing in an empty stadium, but again, that's testing. Uh, that's absolutely crucial. Uh, you know, it would be a great help if, uh, some of the therapeutic drugs under, uh, you know, that are now being tested, if they, they worked out and had significant difference uh, in, in outcomes. Uh, but so far, that's not on the horizon. Remdesivir certainly helps, but it's not a magic potion. Uh, there may be other things that will help. Maybe we can put all these things together in cocktails of drugs and, and have really significant impact. Uh, the real, as you well know, the, the real thing is the vaccine. And... There is a concerted effort to make that and create it, distribute it, manufacture it all at warp speed. That's the White House terminology. We've talked to many experts, John, who believe that we should be cautious in our optimism about the speed and the availability of a vaccine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you not only have to scientifically solve the problem, you have to manufacture and distribute hundreds of millions, uh, really billions of doses. Uh, so... The time frame 
it's difficult. You know, there are ethical issues which I think have been resolved on on you know challenging human subjects. Uh, I think those I know those things are going forward. That's a great acceleration. Uh, they're also doing things simultaneously instead of sequentially, which cuts time significantly. I don't think there's any problem with that. But the one thing that they cannot short circuit is the safety testing. Uh, that has to be done. And that does take some time to make sure that these things are safe. That's the voice of John Barry. Uh, stay tuned for the fourth segment of our program, The Takeout, which you are thoroughly enjoying. The topic of the great influenza, his book on the pandemic, 1918-1920. I'm Major Garrett. Back in a minute. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. Continuing our conversation about the pandemic we're living through now and what history can and ought to teach us about the pandemic of 1919-1920. John M. Barry is the author of The Great Influenza. Uh, John, how much did science contribute or change after the pandemic? And do you see it working at kind of this 21st century pace that uh, takes your breath away in pursuit of either therapeutics or a vaccine? Um, yes, to, to, in 1918, the scientists, and they were really the main figures in, in my book. They were mm-hmm. as smart as anybody around today. Uh, absolutely brilliant. The, uh, obviously, the speed of the disease and the limitations on their tools at the time limited what they could achieve during the pandemic. Uh, they did develop uh, they didn't know what a virus was. They knew that they were these really small organisms, but they weren't sure whether they were entirely different kinds of organisms or just a really tiny bacteria. Uh, that definition of a virus came out of the influenza research, but not until 1925. Uh, they weren't sure what was causing it. They did develop vaccines against secondary bacterial uh, invaders, or they, we found out later they were secondary. They, the time they thought they might have been the primary cause of uh, death. Uh, if you get a pneumonia shot today, that's a straight line descendant of a vaccine developed in 1918. Uh, you know, they were great scientists. Uh, one minor figure in the in the book won the Nobel Prize in 1966 for work he did in 1911. Uh, the Nobel Committee won't give you the prize till they know you're right. And it took 55 years for the rest of science to catch up with his finding. Uh, today, probably the only good thing I can think of that's coming out of this pandemic is the tremendous cooperation uh, uh, in the scientific communities around the world. Uh, trading of information that you don't normally see, uh, interdisciplinary approaches that you don't normally see, breaking down of you know, so-called silos and things like that. Uh, and you know, that is, that is helping, you know, you have over a hundred vaccine trials that are either underway or soon to be underway. And you have, you know, uh, innumerable, uh, uh, work on therapeutic drugs short of the vaccine. Uh, and that is moving at, at warp speed. And as I say that, that is the, the only really 
good thing that I can think of that's coming out of this. How long that lasts afterwards, I don't know. Right. Uh, skepticism is a part of the human condition. Uh, and I wonder if it was true then, uh, during that pandemic, that people wondered if they were getting truth or people were getting rich or manipulating things in order to get them to change their behavior around that because you see some of that conversation creeping into our analysis, if you want to call it that now. Uh, any historical comparison there or any observations you might have about that? Uh, well, mostly, I guess the only analogy I make, the, uh, you know, the government back then was telling flat out lies because we were at war and, uh, and one of them was and spread by, by a government official uh, and was that it was germ warfare, you know, germ, Germany, germ warfare, same thing. Ah, right. Uh, you know, that was the only thing that would, became widespread, uh, you know, that, that it was that kind of a, a plot and evil and sinister and that advanced the government desire to make people more anti-German. Uh, you know, the Wilson, the president, never said that. Wilson never made a public statement of any kind whatsoever uh, about the pandemic. Uh, the, there was plenty of government leadership in a good sense coming out of the army. Uh, almost the entire scientific world was in the military, what is now Rockefeller University, for example, that entire entity, every scientist in it was incorporated into the army. Um, deans of all the best medical schools in the, in the country became colonels and so forth. That um, They were doing good work, but... Uh, yeah, but I, the reason I raise that is because, as you know, there is an anti-vaxxer uh, segment of our country, uh, because they're the drug companies, they're going to make money, or there are other people who will profiteer on this, and it creates suspicion, it creates a reluctance, it uh, is an impediment to uh, adopting behaviors that might, in fact, keep an individual safe or a community safe. Um, like I said, that's part of human nature, but it can become viral in of itself. Right. You know, that wasn't really a problem in 1918. It actually was a real problem in 2009 when we had the sort of a pandemic that wasn't. Technically, it was a pandemic. We were very concerned. Uh, the swine flu, you know, the initial reports was that that had a 10% case fatality rate. Uh, you know, it, was not, it turned out to be nothing like that, uh, partly because that pandemic uh, was so mild. There was a lot of speculation that it was all about profit making on for vaccine manufacturers. And um, even in some pretty respectable journals, uh, there was, uh, you know, that speculation was, was voiced. So that was almost in the mainstream. It wasn't quite in the mainstream, but close to it. Mm -hmm. And many experts we've talked to said that experience gave us a false sense of security about all this question of pandemic Bravo. preparedness. Um, before I let you go, before the radio audience, I'll make sure they hear this. How did you get interested in this topic? That's a longer story than uh, <laughs> what, than you think. You know, when I was a kid, I wanted to do two things. I wanted to be a writer 
and I wanted to do medical research. And I can remember the moment in time and why, but believe me, it's too long a story as to why I said, well, I'm not going to do that. Uh, and then I I'd, wanted to write a book that would have expanded a chapter in an earlier book I had written that would have been about the home front in World War I and 1919 when the United States practically exploded, one of the most interesting years in American history. Uh, and I got deflected from that larger book and ended up writing uh, the book about the pandemic, um, exclusively about the pandemic. And when you were finished with it, uh, what was the thing you found most surprising in that research? Uh, actually, that probably that nobody had written about it before. <laughs> <laughs> that it was wide open, that it was wide open. That's a great feeling. <laughs> no, it, it was more, and this is a question I get asked a lot. You know, an awful lot of people died and there's practically no literature about it. You have a novella, not even a full-length novel, by Catherine Ann Porter. Very good. Right. William Maxwell wrote for The New Yorker. He wrote a few short stories. And that's about it. There was actually a lot of pulp fiction written about it in the 1920s that didn't survive. Uh, it was pulp fiction. Nobody is certainly not part of the literary canon. And yet, you know, one of my favorite writers, John Dos Passos, had influenza on a troop ship, which is one of the worst places you could have it. They were like floating coffins. And his entire body of work, he wrote about two sentences about it. Uh, and, and yet it clearly seemed to be part of everyone's understanding. When uh, the Nazis entered Berlin, Christopher Isherwood wrote Berlin stories from which the great movie cabaret came mm -hmm. and when the nazis uh entered berlin he said you could feel it like influenza in your bones so he expected his audience to recognize a sense of deep dread and uh, that the disease that the pandemic had created and and plus one of the symptoms of influenza in fact it was misdiagnosed initially as dengue which is called breakbone fever that symptom so and i'm sure his audience his readers did recognize that analogy and yet there is so little literature about it not only in the english language but in any language and you know there's speculation on about as to why, but I've never really come up with something that was convincing to me as to why people hadn't written about it. That's the voice of the great John M. Barry. For our radio audience, we have to depart now. Please stay tuned uh, next week, of course. And for those of you who want to catch up on the Takeout Outtake Especial, that's segment five. Stay tuned on CBSN and on all podcast platforms. So, John, hang with us one more segment. We'll continue. I'm Major Garrett. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back for those of you on the podcast platform and on CBSN. Great to have you with us for segment five. We call this The Takeout Outtake Especial, a little bit lighter. Uh, John M. Barry is our special guest. Uh, he uh, let me know during the break that uh, 
it's it's a bit hard for him to hear me say the great John M. Barry, uh, and I appreciate that. I understand his, humil- his humility. Uh, I think it's misplaced. I think John M. Barry is one of the great writers of our country, um, and uh, the book The Great Influenza is amazing. Uh, his other one of his other books, uh, The Ambition and the Power, I consider one of the best books ever written, a nonfiction book about Washington politics in the modern era. You also wrote a book called The Rising, Rising Tide. What's that about, John? That is about a flood of the Mississippi River in 1927 that uh, made almost 1% of the entire population of the country uh, flooded out of their homes and changed American politics. Uh, And another book about Roger Williams, right? Uh, Roger Williams and the Creation of the American Soul, Church, State, and the Birth of Liberty. Yeah, phenomenal book. So, folks, uh, you you. know uh, this program. We love books. Uh, I recommend all of them with... uh, complete confidence and assurance, uh, you will find them uh, not only informational, but lyrical. Uh, So, John, uh, just well done across the board. Just well done. Thank you Uh, very much. uh, One of the things we do in this segment is we ask uh, the same three questions to everyone because people love to compare and contrast the answers, and they're revealing in their own way. Slightly clever, not overly clever. So, in uh, no particular order, John, uh, take these questions. Uh, Most influential book in your life? Uh, all-time favorite or one of your favorite movies and uh, if you are indulging yourself in music what artist or genre are you most likely to listen to uh, well the godfather or apocalypse now are probably my favorite movies francis ford coppola both right as the director yes and and uh a writer and inspir- inspirational behind both um so a lot of people mention a godfather uh what is it about apocalypse now that gets you well, of course, you know, that's that's my period, Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, of course, that age. Uh, then in terms of most influential book. Yeah, actually, let me think of two s- stories, one by Thomas Mann, Antonio Kruger. Uh, I identified very much with that character uh, when I was young. And the second one I was uh, had already started writing. Uh, Samuel Johnson wrote uh, an account of the life of Richard Savage, uh, which seemed to me to be a perfect model of uh, how I wanted to write about people, because on the one hand, it was sympathetic. And on the other hand, it seemed absolutely ruthless in its pursuit of the truth. Uh, although there was a book by a terrific writer, Richard Holmes, Old Johnson Savage. I read that and discovered that that Johnson had not been quite so ruthless in his pursuit of the truth as I had uh, had thought. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, so even even our heroes have clay feet. Right. That, oh. Yeah. That that enduring clay feet problem. Uh, it uh, is a, is a repetitive motif uh, in literature, music, uh, poetry, and actual life. Um, okay. So then, when you get to uh, the music, I guess it'd be Dylan. Bob Dylan? Yeah. Uh, America's best songwriter? Probably. You know, I actually thought he did deserve the Nobel Prize for Literature. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that was pretty controversial, but uh, and in, he seemed in his later life to have walked away from, from a lot of what he wrote and that meant so much to a generation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, 
the uh, you know, I read his uh, autobiography, which yeah. I thought was absolutely terrific. And there's a line in there that stuck with me that I'm not sure I agree with, but uh, said, "Next to life, art is nothing." <laughs> and right. you know, he, I I guess he believes that and feels that, and uh, I'm not sure I I agree with that, mm-hmm. but. Anyway, you mentioned uh, a while ago that when you were young, you wanted to be a writer. When you were that young person, what did you imagine a writer, a life of a writer would be? And has it been the way you imagined it? Uh, Well, I probably expected to be writing fiction and I haven't. Uh, You know, maybe partly because of I'm curious about things and, and the research that I do on subjects it seems more fitting for, for nonfiction. Uh, in terms of, you know, obviously I think art's important, you, can, you know, based on what we just said about, uh, about Dylan. Um, in terms of the actual life, you know, I'm, you know, fortunately pretty successful right now, but it's not so long ago that, uh, you know, it's, it's difficult to, to write books and make make a living and in fact at the time the influenza book first came out i thought i could write that book in in at most two and a half years uh and i got a very nice advance uh for a book that you could write in two and a half years at most but it took me seven years wow it's the same amount of money divided by seven right (laughs) uh and I was actually looking at life as a graduate student financially right about the time right. that that book came out. Uh, and that's not so long ago. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, well within living memory for me. <laughs> so, you know, financially, you know, it, it can be very difficult. You know, right now things are a lot better than that for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, so I guess I, you know, I, I never expected to live in a garret. Yes, right. <laughs> Understood. Uh, and that that amount of time that you imagined and what it actually took, uh, did you find in that time, once you got past two and a half years, saying to yourself, what's going wrong? Or did you say to yourself, no, there's just so much more to do and there's nothing no. wrong that I misunderstood how much there was to do? I certainly misunderstood. Uh, but for the... And I, Almost as soon as I got into it, I realized this, it was going to take a lot longer than I had anticipated, and I wasn't happy about it. And plus, more importantly, uh, it just didn't seem to be going well, which is part of why it was taking so long. Um, but at the five and a half year point, everything came together, and uh, and I was there's a figure in the book, Oswald Avery, mm-hmm. uh, uh, who is the person who discovered that DNA carries the genetic code. And that came out of actually influenza research, although not to 1944. You're probably familiar with the saying, basic research is you shoot an arrow into the air, wherever it lands, you paint the target. Uh, (laughs) So he started out working on the pneumococcus and ended up discovering DNA carried the genetic code and launching the entire field of molecular biology. But as I said, that took him 25 years. And there were periods of more than 10 years at a time when he didn't publish a single scientific paper. And, you know, he went through hell. Uh, And, you know, he said, 
uh, I, you know, failure is my daily bread. I thrive on it. Well, he didn't thrive on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had a nervous breakdown. Anyway, uh, but his persistence sort of kept me going. An interesting thing, you know, Lloyd Carr, the former University of Michigan football coach right. who won a national championship, about six Big Ten championships, he's a friend of mine. And, uh, and he, he read the influenza book. And when Michigan's team was going through a hard time, he told them the story about Oswald Avery to inspire them and, you know, talk about persistence and sticking with it and so forth. The, you know, the amazing thing about Avery wasn't just that he, you know, it, it, it would, what he was going through was for a football coach, like losing 30 games in a row, but he continued to believe in what he was doing. And anyway, that, um, it was part of that was writing that the influenza book was a pretty difficult time for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously I'm glad I did it now. Sure. Was there any time in that process or any other process where you had a prolonged case of writer's block? I've never had that problem. Uh, you know, I used to, it's sort of ingrained now, but I used to uh, have up on my wall ahead of me, above me, you know, just a simple, you know, reminder. What are you trying to say? Say it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and you say it as simply as you can sometimes, but not so simply that you oversimplify what you're trying to say. Uh, so, you know, maybe that advice that I would give myself uh, was useful. Uh, it was to me anyway. What are you trying to say? Say it. It ain't that hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, words to live by, whether you're a writer or not. What are you trying to say? Say it. John Benberry, thank you. Uh, It's been a great, great pleasure for me to uh, meet you via Zoom. I hope someday in the future we can meet each other in person, but know you have my uh, maximum respect and appreciation for the work you've done. Well, it's very kind of you to say, I mean, seriously, and uh, also seriously, I've been a fan of yours for a long time, so this is great for me too. Excellent. John, be well, be safe, enjoy New Orleans, and like I said, I hope uh, we get to see each other in the not-too-distant future. Same to you. Thanks, John. Be well. That's it, folks. We'll see you next week. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Zoe Poindexter, and Jake Rosen. CBSN production by Eric Susanen, Grace Seekers, and Daniel Peebles. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS Audio. If you like the takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.